Welcome to I Am, I Have, brought to you by Happiful Magazine and Counselling Directory. On today's episode, I had the huge pleasure of talking to Hassan Akkad. Hassan is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, activist, and the author of Hope Not Fear, Finding My Way from Refugee to Filmmaker to NHS Hospital Cleaner. We talk about his passion for storytelling, why choosing hope with action can be life-changing, boundaries and how he speaks about his mental health to support himself and others. Before we start today's episode, I'd love to encourage you to download the free Happiful app. Not only can you read Happiful magazine in its digital format, but you can find help and support should you need it. Now, back to Hassan. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I love speaking with him. If you do, we'd love it if you could check out his book, and share, rate, and review this podcast. I have the incredible honor of talking to Hassan Akkad today. Hassan is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, activist, and author of Hope Not Fear, Finding My Way from Refugee to Filmmaker to NHS Hospital Cleaner. Welcome, Hassan, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Oh, it's wonderful that you're here. And I know that it's been a very busy time for you with with your book coming out and you've been doing so much talking. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to ask you to do a bit more by introducing yourself in your own words and telling people what you think they should know about you. My name is Hassan Akkad. (laughs) I'm from Syria, Damascus. And I think what people should know about me is that I am a friend, a brother, a son. I am a swimmer. I really like driving and walking. I used to be an English teacher, so uh, I used to tell stories for a living. And then I became a a documentary filmmaker. So I had a career change and got into documentary filmmaking. Uh, I also love photography. I do quite a lot of photography because it stems from the same urge to to, to tell stories. So I like to tell visual stories as well. And um, I'm not sure if I'm an activist. I mean, I I try my best to to, to campaign and to, to to speak out and to do the things that I, I should be doing about the, the, the causes that matter to me. But yes, I would like to think of myself as an activist. Yeah, so that's me. That's a lot for us to be going on with. And one of the things that you said was your passion for storytelling. And that's your first I am, which is I am a storyteller. And tell us where this all began. I mean, obviously, you started, as you said, as an English teacher. So was storytelling something that came from your childhood and then continued into adulthood? Yes, it, it, it definitely started from uh, my childhood because uh, my parents used to tell me a lot of stories as a kid. And in the Arabic, I mean, in our society, stories play a really big role. So we have stories that are passed on from generations. I mean, most, most of them are not true. They're completely fictional, but uh, they're very interesting. And also because I'm very interested in the Quran. So the Quran is, is, is full of stories, full of very interesting stories about prophets. And so, yes, I've always been like growing up, I was fascinated by stories. I used to love listening to a good story. So I remember that we had relatives, like I had some of my cousins who were really good at it. So they would sit down and were like, you know what happened to me today? And they would embark on this journey to tell us a story that happened to them. And I was always fascinated listening to details. In my late teens, I was 19 years old when I got my first teaching job. And I I loved doing it. I loved teaching because it involved telling stories. And because I was teaching English, I was teaching English language and I was also teaching social studies. 
So I used to rely heavily on, on using a story as a medium, as part of my lesson plan to deliver the lesson. And I started to become really good at it. And I think be, because I also love films, so I used to watch movies all the time. I mean, I still do watch movies all the time. So that helped me know how to structure a story. You know, because I watch films, because I like do my photography and because I'm teaching. So I had different elements that enabled me to, to become good at telling stories in a way. <laughs> it sounds like you're always seeing the narrative and everything that's happening around you, whether that's when you're teaching or you're moving through life or you're working with Choose Love, which we'll come on to, to later yeah. on. But yeah. from, from that early sense of storytelling from your family and from watching films, you've got that kind of narrative ease. Yes, I do. I mean, I, I got that narrative ease. I knew that before, I mean, sadly, when I was a student myself, I used to go to public schools, so like state schools. And the educational system was okay, but I mean, I was, I was really, I, mean, I was a really bad student <laughs> and I was very, I used to drive my teachers mad and they used to say, oh, I hope, they used to say as a way of coming back at me, this, we hope that one day you'll become a teacher so you'll know what you're putting us through. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I wasn't taught, I mean, at, when I was a student, I wasn't taught about like, you know, about plots. I wasn't taught about like a climax, a resolution, like the elements of a story. That's something that I knew. I didn't know like the wordings of it. I didn't know the structure, but I just knew, I knew the practicality of it. I knew how to tell a story. But I think when I became a teacher, that's when um, these ideas cemented in my head. Is because, you know the saying, when you teach, you learn twice. So I, uh, when I was teaching, I, I knew the elements of a, of a story. And, and then I, it helped me, it helped me tell stories. I would like to think that I was a good teacher because I still have students who like message me on Instagram like, oh, you taught me 15 years ago or 10 years ago. So it helped me. It, it helped me. It helped me become a good teacher in a way. How wonderful is that to still have people who are your students contacting you to say that they remember you and they they enjoyed being taught by you? <laughs> I, I I really like it. I mean, I, I, I sometimes get messages uh, from my students being like I'm not sure if you remember me but I, I, I was in this class and I am like uh, seeing what you're doing right now I tell my friends this this guy used to be my teacher and it's it's great I mean I, I, I love that they remember me in a, in, a, in a good way I don't remember most of my teachers in a good way so I, I remember <laughs> that I mean they hold a special place for me and yeah it makes me it makes me feel good to be honest it makes me good and proud in a way that I I, I left a good um, Mark, I, I, they liked me as a teacher. <laughs> Just shows how powerful teachers can be, good teachers yeah. can be yeah. uh, in inspiring other people. And in terms of your storytelling, it's one of the reasons that we're talking today, because your book, Hope Not Fear, Finding My Way from Refugee to Filmmaker to NHS Hospital Cleaner, just in the title itself gives us that sense of the breadth of your story to date. There is obviously a lot more story to tell, but tell us about writing down your personal story and, and how that's been for you. I shared my story on so many mediums before. I, I used to, I was on a few podcasts. I, I was interviewed. And the way I shared my story was always that I'm Hassan. I'm from Damascus. This thing happened to me, which made me have to leave my country. And I came here on a boat and I filmed it and I won a BAFTA and then I came here. And But then when I was, when I got that book deal and I had to write that story, you know, and the process of writing, of writing you have to invoke a as many details as possible because you want your readers to walk in your footsteps so it was very intense because there are elements of my story which are slightly dark or bleak um so bringing back these memories 
was difficult, was really was really hard. And I was working with a, with another writer. I didn't write the book on my own. So with with Rebecca, we would sit together, and then because I'm very visual, I used I started going through all the photographs that I've taken in my life because a photo will help me re- uh, remember an event. And then yes, we 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 spent around 12 weeks just writing the first draft, and uh, it was tough. It was hard. There were times when we were both laughing or we're or we were both crying, but it was also very cathartic. Uh, I think because there are so many events that I've decided I think my psyche was protecting me so I decided to put it in a box and leave it there and not to, to think about it but then when I opened all of these boxes <laughs> it, it they, they carried so many emotions but when I was done I felt like I, I did feel better in, in, in the end it, it was certainly really hard in, in during the process of writing it but when I when it was done and the book was out there I was like great you know I felt like it was such a massive weight that I I I um, and that was lifted off my shoulders. When I was researching writing memoirs before I got into to writing my book, they said, if you're writing a book because it's cathartic, you should go and see a therapist. There was another reason. If you're writing a book as a revenge, you should go and hire a lawyer. So I, <laughs> I, di- I, didn't, I didn't intend to write this book because it would be cathartic. I, that wasn't a, a, a plan because I do my therapy, but it was certainly like, it was very helpful. It really helped me. And helpful, I think, is is a word we're going to come on to in a bit in, in terms of the way you help other people. But I would encourage anyone listening to go and get your book and read it because it's an incredible book. You've shared so much, but also in terms of you were talking about your your visual storytelling and senses. I got a real sense of different places through the way you describe them. You know, you talk about the taste of water in different places, which is is something that's so evocative and different smells and foods and and those feelings. I mean, it really is a multi-layered book of, of you conveying everything that's happened to you and we're going to talk a bit more about that in a moment but I want to move on to your next I am which is I am driven to support others and this is the point that you start the book you say that in the past 10 years a lot has changed for you but what's never changed is your drive to contribute and support other people when it's a time of crisis in particular and I wondered if you could say a bit more about that and perhaps in the last five years in particular yeah i am driven by supporting other people because i was i was supported by so many people um along the way i mean especially in the past 10 to 15 years i wouldn't have been here i wouldn't have been physically here to having this conversation with you if i didn't if i wasn't supported by the people who i've met on on the way who like uh, changed my life in a way like their kindness and their generosity um helped me massively to 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 survive and to 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 carry on and and to be here i wasn't always like this so i i i wanted to be honest in my book because before i became a teacher i i wasn't i was a i wasn't this person who wanted to help others i i had some very questionable beliefs and i i i certainly was very influenced by my surrounding by by the people around me so i wasn't always a person who was driven by helping others i think it's it was it was triggered by becoming a teacher because teaching felt 
like uh, it, it helped it, it shaped it shaped my personality and character as a person right now and even in the darkest places i've met people who 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 gave me hope who who like fed me who gave me clothes who who gave me shelter and um yeah i feel like i should pay it forward you know because to me i live my life always thinking that this is it's a it's a it's a cycle so you you <laughs> whatever you i mean it's if you now have if you support me with something like this, like having me on your platform, you're supporting me. So now I automatically think that I should pay it forward and like help someone else and like also have them on my platform. And I think the world can be so much better if we if we operate like that, if we just help one another. Um, I'm not always like this. Like I I definitely sometimes I I shut down and I become slightly self-centered because I feel like it's it's too much and I can't help everybody at the same time. And I just want to protect myself for now. But yeah, in in general, helping others in a way, I am helping myself. You know, and 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 when I took that decision to go and and clean that hospital, clean that ward in the hospital, it was driven by like I wanted to help myself. I wanted to have some agency of the situation. I I was going through a crisis, and helping others really helped me in a way. <laughs> so anyone listening who doesn't know your story, you went and supported at Whips Cross Hospital when the pandemic broke out and yeah. you helped by cleaning the hospital and you you volunteered for this. You weren't working there when the, the pandemic began. You actively sought a, a yeah. post to help out. I did just because, I mean, initially, honestly, like the first thing, it was a selfish reason. I was losing my mind <laughs> and I and I wanted to do something to, to be, be, because I didn't want to lose my mind. I couldn't stay at home. I had to do something. So I, I, I looked up, I started looking up ways to help during that time. And I came across that job post because they were, they, there was such a heavy demand for cleaners during COVID, especially at hospitals. And uh, yeah, and then I got that job um and it was in a way it was a really tough uh it was very physically and mentally demanding job but also like it really helped me <laughs> I don't know I think being part of that group being around my colleagues at the time and being part of that unit I felt like we were you know we were we had that bond we had that camaraderie and we had that companionship and we were all working together so that was such a positive thing that I haven't had in a long time so it was, yeah, it was, I don't know how to best describe it, but it was certainly like one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life, if not the most extraordinary experience of my life to, to be there during that time. And you talk about the massive amount of work that's done on the front line that was not appreciated in the way it should have been, was treated in rather a glib manner by by some of the politicians and people who were yeah. were relying upon the huge amount of workers who were keeping our hospitals and our healthcare going. And seeing that up close and personal really drove you to make a change around it, didn't it? It did. I came here and I lived in a in a middle class bubble like <laughs> most of my friends are champagne socialists <laughs> or like I honestly like I, I I was living in East London. I, I lived in the bubble. I I I didn't I I I was I was so oblivious to so many things similar to a lot of people. I haven't had friends who were like living on minimum wage. I I minded my own business. I didn't get involved in politics and I just just was living a normal life doing my work and when I when I worked in that hospital and you know I had access to a world which I've never seen I've never witnessed and I was 
uh, in awe of my colleagues who most of them were on like London living wage and they, you know, commute three to four hours to get to hospital. And um, so breaking bread with them, sitting with them, having these, you know, meals and working together with them made me look at the world in a different way. And you're right. I mean, that most of these peoples were not appreciated. I mean, it's sadly, it took a pandemic to, to appreciate these, the, the people who do these jobs, which are, you know, have proved to be very, very essential, as they were mm -hmm. called, essential jobs uh, during the pandemic. So I, I really liked them. I was there. I was there with them. I asked if I can photograph them and put their photos on, on social media because I wanted to tell their stories with their permission, obviously, and they gave me their permission. The, the reason why I did that is because I posted something about working in a hospital and it gave me so much attention. So I was like, great. So people know about me now. They should know about my colleagues. So I started doing the same, driven by my, you know, my instinct to, 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 tell, to tell stories and to document and to, to, to bear witness to what's happening around me. I also like asked the hospital if I can film and they said, yeah, you feel free. Like my main focus was cleaning. I was hired to work as a cleaner, but like I was filming my colleagues on the side. And then, yes, when I was faced with, with something which I felt was very unfair when the government announced the bereavement scheme and to give you a bit of context the bereavement scheme was 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 launched to protect migrant workers on the front line so if they die their families get indefinite residencies but then they excluded hospital cleaners and porters and healthcare assistants who are mostly migrants so i was like <laughs> i couldn't i just couldn't understand why the government would do that like anyone who's been to a hospital in England or the UK in general, they know that these jobs are done by migrants who are mostly on minimum wage mm -hmm. and they need protection. We should start with them. So yeah, I, I, that <laughs> pushed me to do something and I, I was cleaning the ward and I, I was like, what do I do? What do I do? And then it was, it was, you know, the, our lives were net, then were all online, everyone like at home doing online. So I was like, I'm just going to do an, an online protest. So I, I, I recorded a video, which I put on Twitter and got like within four or five hours, they got five or 6 million views and and then it forced the government Newton. So they decided to include everybody in the bereavement scheme. And yeah, it was, <laughs> I, I was very proud that I was part. I mean, obviously many people worked on, on that campaign, but I was, I, was, I was proud to be, you know, to, to have affected some positive change during that very miserable time. Well, thank you for the part that you played in it because it was so important. And as you're talking, I feel like, every time you pick up a camera or a, a pen or your laptop you're saying this is my story and now you've looked at this look at all the rest of it yeah. you know <laughs> I am I'm one man and this is my story this is my part of it but now yeah. I want you to look at the whole spectrum of what's happening to, to people yeah. who are going through what I'm going through. I feel like that's a really big responsibility um, I because I have a platform and when I made that film when I made the film when I did the journey to, to, to Britain it, that, that gave me a platform which I used to talk about the refugee crisis and then when I worked in the hospital it also gave me a platform so I wanted to talk about my colleagues that urge to to tell other stories is driven by my responsibility by me checking my privilege and having this platform that I want to share with others and it's also driven I think it's slightly also driven by my survival's guilt as you know like trauma sometimes I, I was diagnosed with with complex PTSD and I think the feeling of guilt um, is, is a symptom of my diagnosis. 
and especially feeling guilty i'll go back to survival's guilt so i feel like i when when the focus is on me when come, people come to me like oh my god you did this you're a hero you're I'm like no 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 it's not just me <laughs> there's so many others who are also involved <laughs> so i try to do that in my work well, like in 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 my book i don't know if you've noticed i wanted to to, to shed light on others because it's it, it's hard to make it it's just me 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 you know I, i've done the whole thing i'm love me i care about me no so i i try as best as best as i can to to, to platform other stories and shed light on on, on bigger crises and that comes through in spades in your book. And you just mentioned PTSD and complex PTSD and your mental health is something you talk about in the book. And you also talk about the fact that you shared with your aunt about PTSD. And, and this is another example of you talking to other people because she didn't have a word for what she was going through. And for me, that was a really significant part of your storytelling because it was by talking about what's happening for me, I allow you to talk about what's happening for you. And you were saying that perhaps in your culture, perhaps there wasn't the name for that kind of mental health crisis. There is a, there was a stigma to it. Um, mm. um, and there still is, to be honest. So there's a stigma around mental health. I left Syria when I was 23 years old, uh, 23, 24. And imagine like up until I was 24, I had no, like I had no education whatsoever around mental health. We, I've never, I remember, so if someone was going, like now looking back at it, when, when people were having mental health problems, they were called crazy. So they were like, this person's like, oh, he's lost his mind. People don't, don't. The, 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 there wasn't a conversation around therapy. There wasn't a conversation about psychologists, none of that. There was a, there was a, a stigma and um, gosh, it was awful. Like the way we talked about the subject was, 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 was pretty bad. And then unfortunately, when the Syrian, when the, when the, when, when the Syrian crisis started and it's, you know, the, it has affected everyone's mental health and hardly anyone had any education around mental health. So people have embarked on physical journeys to get out of Syria. I'm talking about the ones who left Syria. Mind you, the ones who are in Syria are still like in war situations, but people embarked on, a, on physical journeys like me to leave the country. But then once they got to their destinations, I, I felt like everyone was embarking on a journey to, to understand what was happening in their brains and in their minds. And, um, um, I, I learned about it because a colleague of mine sent me a document, a PDF document about PTSD and reading, just reading about it and reading, getting to the symptoms. I, it was very emotional. Like I, I cried. I remember crying so hard, like literally like tears were dropping on my phone as I was reading that. It's just because I, I was like, wow, it's, it's a thing. And it's, it's like a flu, it's an illness and it can be cured. So yes, I, that made me want to be very, I mean, I felt like I should be open about what happened to me because it could help others. And that's what, that's why, like I shared that story of my aunt who I visited in Germany and told her about what's happening to me and it helped her understand because she, she saw the similarities. And part of the reason why I was very open in my book about mental health and, and, um, because I wanted people to maybe read my book, especially like other Syrians or other people who've been through similar experiences and be like, you know, like it's, there is a way out of it. There is, there is the light in the end. And um, I talk about my, my diagnosis. I talk about the, all like the symptoms that I went through. I talk about by the therapy that I'm doing, 
because maybe again it will help others navigate their own mental health problems it appears on the page with what feels like ease when you say I will use everything at my disposal yeah my therapist EMDR and you talk about the fact that you know COVID has been difficult for you you have your therapist and that reinforcement of I will get mental health support but also the fact that your friends and connection are a really big mental health support for you you talk about going and walking barefoot with your friends and just getting back to nature and that tells us that there's room for all different kinds of things that can support us with our mental health absolutely and also like I'm also aware of 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 the fact that I have access to therapy because of my situation a lot of people I'm not saying that therapy is the only solution because some people don't have access to therapy. I have access to private therapy and that's because I am privileged. (laughs) Um, um, But uh, as you like said, I I touch upon what makes me like what gives me support. And it's it's having friends. It's uh, it's having a community. It's having a purpose. It's being it's like nature is therapy for me. And um, part of the reason why I talked about these things is because, you know, like community is very important. And especially if you live in exile. So a lot of people come here and then, I mean, if they don't speak the language, there's this pressure on people to integrate. Mm -hmm. Um, But how do you integrate when you have a baggage, (laughs) when you have, when you've gone through a lot? So before you integrate, you want to be, to feel supported, be it like having access to to therapy or having friends or having people to come and like, have like, you know, call your mate or have lunch with you or like take you, go, go partying with you. And that's why, like, I, I mean, to me, I mentioned that because I wanted to highlight the importance of community, of, of yes. people being together, of connection. It's certainly that human connection, especially for me, it's the best thing ever. Like I, and that's what you can imagine during lockdown, I was really struggling. <laughs> I agree with you about connection. And I think just in the same way we talked about the impact teachers can have, friends can have an amazing impact when talking about mental health you know it was a friend of yours that sent you a pdf about ptsd it was a friend of yours who mentioned what depression was you know I think for anyone listening we shouldn't underestimate the power of a friend reaching out and saying have you thought about this have you read about that because that can be something that's free and supportive and might start someone on a pathway to knowing more about their mental illness like it did for you Again, like I, I remember when I started, I told you I wouldn't have been here without the people around me. And my friends have played a really big role in helping me, you know, understand mental health illness. Again, I didn't know what depression meant. I didn't know when my friend said, are you depressed? I didn't, I didn't know. I knew the word depressed, but I didn't know the extent of it. What is depression? And I, 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 there are so many things that I had no awareness of. And without my friends, I, I wouldn't have been able to know. Um, and... <laughs> Again, so writing about these things, I go back to writing about them, is a way of like, I wanted to, you know, provide like a, like a module of, of how, how come I, I survived all of these things and I still, I am still alive and I'm still living my life. I wanted to provide an example. Uh, and, and my story is, is basically that example of how I managed to get here. And yeah, I am. I mean, if, if any of our friends are listening to this, I would like to say thank you for being there for me. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. That's really wonderful. And I was really touched when you wrote about going into nature and having that conversation about depression. So I think sometimes these terms feel so big. And I was interested, you mentioned at the top of the podcast about you're a swimmer. Do you wild swim? And do you find that swimming does something good for you mentally? Oh, gosh. It's like wild swimming, I mean, especially wild swimming, but swimming in general really helps me. 
uh, with my anxiety. I feel like because when I'm underwater, especially when I'm underwater, I feel like I don't think about anything else. I feel like it helps me like switch off. I tend to overthink a lot. And I, I find swimming so therapeutic for another reason is because every time I'm in water, for, I'm trying to, to, to describe it as best as I can. I feel like the water shields, like it, 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 it works as a shield because I overthink and because I have anxiety, it's, it's, it works as a shield from, from these thoughts and everything that I'm anxious about. As long as I'm in water, I'm like, I am the happiest person alive. <laughs> so I tend to, like now I was, I'm, I'm moving house. There's a swimming pool that I really like in North London. So I was looking for a house around that swimming pool so I can have access to it because it, I find it really helpful. I, I Swimming is, I read about a connection between wild swimming, swimming and like therapy and like I'm, I didn't read about it a lot to, to, to give you many details but it is, I find it magical I think other people some people find running very helpful because it's like I mean the way it helps me it helps them but I so for me it's it's swimming and it's also cooking so when I'm when I'm cooking because I'm focused on one thing I'm focused on the act of like you know chopping or like um cooking in general um I, again, yeah, my, I, um, I switch off and I, I'm focused on one thing and I feel a lot calmer when I'm done. I completely understand what you mean about swimming. And I've spoken to a lot of people about the therapeutic benefits of being in the water. And I think sometimes with being in water, it's like being held, physically yeah. held, because you're, you're surrounded by the water itself. It's the sensation, it's the touch. Your whole body is having to move and think and you're suspended and I think in that way, it's it's uh, it's very healing being in water. Yeah. And also, yeah. as you said, it's quite hard to ruminate when you're moving through water because all of your senses are firing. It's um, absolutely it's yeah. really beautiful. And it's it's wonderful to hear that that works for you. And I think you should get a house right next to the swimming pool if that works for you. <laughs> I um, got it. I, I did. I got that house. <laughs> oh, brilliant. I'm really yeah. glad. Thanks. So I'm going to move on to your final I am, which is I am of the belief that hope not fear is what we all need right now tell us more i mean certainly a small amount of fear <laughs> is not that bad <laughs> because it drives us to do something yes. uh, i think my i was i was my urge to go and clean, work in the hospital was driven by my fear as well my fear of the of of the level of of the high level of uncertainty back then and i didn't know i felt like my new home was under threat and i've already lost a home so that that small amount of fear was was helpful back then, and hope. I mean, the reason why I say like I'm focusing a lot on hope is because, um, and I titled my book "Hope Not Fear," because hope is important. I think, um, and especially if it's linked with action, hope on its own is is slightly passive. I can't I can't you know sit here and or stay at home and hope the world can become better. But um, if it's if if it's if if I link that hope with an action, with, a, with it, it will it will do something. It will help in a way. It will make the world slightly better place to live for everyone. Um, I've got. I mean, I I've witnessed the worst and the best of humanity. There were times when I lost hope, when, when I hit rock bottom. I lost hope, and I didn't. I mean, I didn't want to carry on. But I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I didn't, and I. Gosh, <laughs> I've, I've, there's no hierarchy in trauma, okay? But I feel like I have gone through a lot. 
somehow, for some reason, a lot of people who've read the book, they messaged me saying, they, saying that um, they were impressed by my positivity despite everything that happened to me. And I think I've made that decision. I wanted to carry on. I didn't want my journey to end <laughs> before it's time uh, in this life. So that's why I've driven by hope, driven by hope that things will be better, driven by hope, despite all of these obstacles that were in my way. I mean, I, in my 20s, you know, 20s is one of the best, one of the best times for anyone. But in my 20s, I was between detention and torture and, and exile and journeys and camps. And, but still, I mean, <laughs> I feel like the fact that I had that hope that things will be okay. And that's purely, I mean, sub, I mean, it's, it's, it, this is for me, I, mean, I don't, I'm not speaking for everyone here, but this is, I had that mindset that things will be better. And yeah, things got better. They did. And yeah. you choose hope. You choose hope in the way that you continually reaffirm that there are good people and we can choose to be kind. So for the experiences that you had that were dreadful, you also remember the experiences you had where someone chose kindness and you really underline those, you know, this is the way this made me feel. We can do this. We can choose. We can choose to be kind. And I think that's one of the things that stays with me from the way you speak about other people. So thank you for explaining why you you decide to choose hope. You're right. It's in a way, it's all a choice. Because there are two threads in my journey, in my physical journey. There is a very dark one and there is a really beautiful, kind, uh, full of human connection and empathy thread. Um, if I, I mean, I could have chosen to, 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 to focus on all the awful things that happened to me in life. It would have been really hard to, to, be, to even be functional in, yes. in, 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 in this world. But I've made an active choice. Be like, listen, this has happened. I've gone through a lot. Uh, and I'm addressing it and I'm working on it and I'm going to put them behind my back because they're out of my control right now. And I can, can what's in my control and what I can do is, is what I choose, is how, what, what I choose to do, what I choose, what, who I choose to be. And I, I choose to be positive. I choose to be okay. I choose to be nice. I choose to be happy. I choose to go out with my friends and like, and, and not isolate myself and shut myself down because I've done it and it didn't work. Yes. <laughs> so, so yeah. That's wonderful. And you choose to live near that swimming pool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to move on to what I have, which is in part about the choice of other people. And it's something that I'm really keen to hear your words on, because it's something that we hear quite often from people who have experienced extreme trauma, which is I have shared my story, but need people to understand what re-traumatizing is and accept my boundaries. I'm going to hand over to you completely for this because I want to hear it from your the words from your mouth. Yes, I I have I mean I I, I have experienced trauma, different levels of trauma, and I sh I feel like I should have full control and agency of how my of of how I talk about my trauma, of what I choose to 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 share about my trauma. I was in a situation where I felt like my trauma was exploited for other people's benefit, which made me feel a lot worse about it. I really appreciate how you're navigating this conversation because it's very, it's, 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 uh, you know, like it's, it's very thoughtful and it's very kind, but sometimes I am in a situation where it's in a public domain and, and I feel like people, they just want to talk about the traumatic experiences because it's traumatic, because it's, because it invokes emotions and because that's how they can view, get views or listeners. And I think we are a lot more than the traumas 
a lot more we are way more as people like i am as a person i'm way more than what happened to me in prison or like what the the the, the, the all the traumatizing experiences that i've gone through in my life writing that book in a way because i told you i, sh I shared my stories before in mediums that i had no editorial control of i didn't have agency of it wasn't it, it was a, it was a horrible experience by writing this book, the reason why I felt very empowered after I published that book is because I had full authorship. I had total agency of what I talk about, of, 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 of how much I share. And um, um, I would say another thing is that from our region, like from the, from, from the Syria region, our stories, we usually were told in the third person. So there will be, there would be, a writer or a filmmaker or a reporter talking about us. You know, they are saying, oh, this has happened to them. This has happened to them. And with, with this book, I'm hoping to, to also inspire people from my region, people from, from the Arab world, from Syria, to, to, have, to, have, to have control of how their stories are told. Because that's, I think that is very, very important. I agree. Thank <laughs> you. And thank you for sharing that. I'm so grateful that you did. Thank you. We're coming to the end of the podcast. And oh, it went by so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and I ask this question, which is, if you could meet yourself 10 years from now, so you get to meet your 10 years older self, sit on a bench together and have a conversation, what do you hope he would say to you? <laughs> um, is swearing allowed? And <laughs> it's totally allowed. <laughs> I think my 10-year-old me would sit, if we were sitting on a bench together, you'd be like, fucking hell, man. <laughs> <laughs> <It's been laughs> um, I'll tell you, in all seriousness, so I'm 33 now, but I think 43 Hassan, if he's sitting with 33 or 23 Hassan right now, um, would, would, I think would, I would give myself a hug and be like, I'm proud of you. <laughs> you you've made it until now. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm going to be very honest with you. Like it's sometimes it's really difficult. Sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes it's really dark and bleak. And um, I am always trying my best <laughs> to, to, to keep the positivity. I don't have to always be positive. Sometimes I am negative. Um, but I, I always think about, like, I think about present. I focus on the present a lot, but like in the future, I hope that it's, it's less hectic than now. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if there's a conversation between us, me and my 10 year old older than me, I'll be like, you've, you've made it proud of you and well done. <laughs> I think you should absolutely be proud of yourself. And I can imagine it's really hectic for you right now with having written yeah. and published this book. So I really appreciate your time today. It's been lovely to talk to you. I really appreciate your book. It's wonderful. Again, it's called Hope Not Fear, Finding My Way from Refugee to Filmmaker to NHS Hospital Cleaner. It's available now. And where can people find you online? They can find me on Twitter and on Instagram, Hassan Akkad. That's, um, I don't have, I, I've permanently deleted Facebook. So yeah. Twitter and Instagram, I exist on these two platforms. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to I Am, I Have. Don't forget to download the free Happful app and we'd really love it if you could rate, review and subscribe to our podcast too. 
Before you go, I wanted to let you know that on the Happful app, we have information about where you can find mental health support, including the counselling directory. If you need immediate help, Samaritans are open 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116-123, or you can email joe at samaritans.org. Help is available. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Lucy Donoghue for Happiful. I hope you'll listen again soon.